All right, it had been quite some day for the Lord's disciples up there in the north of Palestine near the city of Caesarea Philippi where he had, for the first time, asked them for an open confession of their faith. He asked them, Who, whom say ye that I am? Matthew 16, 15. Why? Because as, why had it been such a busy day? Well, because as soon as he received the right answer from them through their spokesman, Peter, which was, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Lord launched his men into some really heavy-duty, deep schooling. For the first time, he spoke to them of his church, which they had never heard about before. He spoke very plainly, without any pictures or symbols, about his mandatory need to go to Jerusalem, where he must suffer many things at the hands of the religious rulers and where he must be killed. He also clearly predicted his resurrection, on the third day after his death, which they didn't really seem to have ears to hear. And then, after an, a very unfortunate interruption by Peter, the Lord went on to speak to his men about true discipleship and how it involves self-denial and bearing one's cross and following him. In other words, pain, suffering, persecution, denial, misunderstanding, rejection, and even the possible loss of life. But just as he had followed up the news, the, the bad news about his own mandatory need to suffer and die with the great news of the fact that he would be, you know, resurrected um, and return again, he also followed the news of the suffering and denials of his followers with the great news. He always followed the bad news with great news. He followed it with the great news of not only finding one's life in losing it, for his sake and for the gospel's sake, but also he followed that up with the great news of his return and his rewards that he would carry with him when he did return. And then we saw that Matthew 16 ended with two sure promises. The first one, the first sure promise, was uh, in answer to the question, is the cost of discipleship worth it? Is it a good investment? And that answer was an emphatic yes. It is the only wise investment that really uh, that there really is. Because in the eternal state, nothing else is going to matter that went on down here on planet Earth other than what was done for Christ's sake, for the gospel's sake. And then in verse 27, the Lord not only predicted and promised his sure return Son of man shall come in the glory. Look at verse 27. He said, The Son of man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels. But he also went on to promise that he would then reward every man according to what? His works, his or her works. He will abundantly reward those who loved and served him. You know, in the eternal state, when we get to heaven, nobody is going to look back and, and wish that he or she had, had not served the Lord Jesus Christ quite so much. Did you know that? None of us are going to look back and say, oh, I wish I hadn't spent quite so much time serving the Lord Jesus Christ and going out among people and talking about him and trying to witness to them. On the other hand, if there are regrets in heaven, every one of us, without exception, is going to look back and say, I wish I had served him more. I wish I hadn't quite wasted so much time on things that didn't count. I wish that I had redeemed my time more wisely for him. 
So the Lord predicted his second coming in Matthew 16, 27, and then his second sure promise, which is found in verse 28. We're going to spend some time looking at it. We did not really discuss it two weeks ago. His second sure promise was that there were some of them to whom he was speaking. And remember, he's speaking to his 12 apostles plus a crowd of people that had then joined them from Caesarea Philippi. He's saying that some there would not taste of death until they would see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And in Mark's account, it says that some of them would not taste of death till they had seen the kingdom of God come with power. Mark, Mark added those two words, with power. Now, Bible scholars have had a lot of speculation as to what the Lord was speaking of here. Some have said that this was a prediction that some of those standing there that he was talking to would not die. We know that's part of the prediction, that some of them would not die. Some Bible scholars say that they wouldn't die before they witnessed the Lord's resurrection. They say that is what he is talking about, and surely that's true. There were 11 apostles there. Not, you know, We don't count Judas because he died before the resurrection, but 11 of the apostles did witness the Lord's resurrection, right? They didn't die before they had seen that. Others say that this is a prediction of the day of Pentecost when the Lord Jesus Christ would come in the person of the Holy Spirit with power. You know, the Holy Spirit is the one who empowered believers. So they say this is a prediction of the uh, day of Pentecost. And surely this true would also be true because 11 apostles, at least in this crowd, witnessed that. They were there on the day of Pentecost. And then others have, have thought about the apostle John who was there and heard this promise, and he, he surely did see in a vision when he was in exile on the Isle of Patmos, he had seen the glorious return of the Son of Man coming to his, establish his kingdom. And you can read about that where? Revelation 19. And then there are also a whole host of people who believe that this was a prediction of the Lord's transfiguration. <clears throat> which was the very next chronologically recorded event to occur in the Lord's life and indeed was witnessed by some of those who were standing there hearing his promise in verse 28 of chapter 16. And those three were Peter, James, and John. Now, the word for kingdom in Greek, it says, you know, they'll not, uh, some will not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. In the Greek, the word for kingdom is vasilia, and it's the word from which the name William comes. Any of you have husbands named William or sons named William or who else did <laughs> Uncles or <laughs> brothers. My father was a William, and his name in Greek was uh, similar. It came from the Greek word vasilia. It actually literally means kingly splendor, and certainly the Lord's kingly splendor was displayed where? On the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, personally, because I know that many of the prophecies of Scripture have dual fulfillments, therefore, I don't think that it's too much to say that his words, his sure promise of Matthew 16, 28, spoke of more than one event. Yes, three of the men would see his kingly splendor displayed on the Mount of Transfiguration in about a week's time from when the Lord made this promise. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, is the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then 11 of them would also see his kingly splendor displayed where? The time of his resurrection. And 11 of them, at least, maybe more from the crowd of Caesarea Philippi, I don't know if any of them went down to Jerusalem for the Passover and saw <clears throat> his kingly splendor 
at the time of his post-resurrection appearances or stayed around until the day of Pentecost. And we do know that at least one of them, John, did see in an awesome advanced showing the actual return of the Lord Jesus Christ in the last day. You know, in dual fulfillment prophecies, the fulfillment of the near prophecy, for example, a dual fulfillment prophecy would be uh, when, when uh, Daniel predicted the abomination of desolation. In other words, that the holy place in the temple would be desecrated by an evil, wicked person. And that actually happened in 168 B.C. by Antiochus Epiphanes. He went in and desecrated, slaughtered a pig on the altar, you know, desecrated the temple. Well, that was a partial fulfillment of that prophecy. When will it fully be fulfilled? In the end times when the Antichrist will desecrate the temple in Israel. So that's what we call a dual fulfillment prophecy. Uh, what happens is the fulfillment of the near prophecy, such as Antiochus Epiphanes, actually serves to verify the reality of the yet future fulfillment. And that's exactly what happened in the event that we're going to be looking at in this lesson, which I have entitled, The Metamorphosis of the Messiah. You'll understand why I use that word metamorphosis. Some of you already do understand. We'll be looking at Matthew 17, verses 1 to 13. We'll also be reading Luke's account over in chapter 9, verses 28 to 36. I'll um, skip Mark's account, but we'll talk about a few places in Mark. But what the Lord did here is he verified the reliability of his promised second coming by giving a glimpse of his second coming kingly splendor to three of his apostles, his inner circle guys, Peter, James, and John. Now, we're going to begin by looking at the scripture because I don't want to make the mistake of forgetting to read all of it. So let's look at Matthew 17. I think I'll just go ahead and read the whole passage and then we'll flip over and read what Luke has to say because he adds a few extra things over in Luke. <clears throat> Start at Matthew 17, verse 1. It says, and after six days, this is six days after what he had just talked about in the preceding verses, you know, when he had said he would return and he said that some would not die before they saw him coming. So after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Then answered, none else than who? <laughs> Peter. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces, their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man, 
until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. That is another prediction of his resurrection right there, isn't it? Verse 10, And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is already come, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. Okay, now if you would go over to Luke 9. Luke adds some things that we didn't read about in Matthew, so let's look at verse 28, Luke 9, 28. And it says, It came to pass about an eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistering. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass, as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias, not knowing what he said. (laughs) While he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone. And they kept it closed and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. Okay, you can stay there or you can go back to Matthew. Matthew will be my primary reference, so you might want to go back to Matthew. All right, first of all, what I want to discuss is an issue of supposed discrepancy, which maybe some of you noticed right away as we read the two accounts, and this is one of those things that the critics love to jump on. They say, "Uh uh-oh, look here, another Bible error because Matthew and Mark say that the um, experience of the transfiguration occurred six days after what we had just discussed in um, Matthew 16, while Luke says, notice in Luke 9.20, was it 9.28? Is that the right verse, 9.20? He said that it was about eight days after these sayings. We say, "Uh uh-oh, does our Bible have errors in it? Well, no, ladies. For one thing, first of all, Luke said about. He was just being approximate. Secondly, there's two ways you can count days. You can be exclusive or you can be inclusive of days. For example, if I said, okay, we're going to all meet here next Tuesday and that will be six days from now. See, I'm being exclusive. I'm not going to count today, Tuesday, and I'm not going to count next Tuesday. So I would say six days, okay? That would be Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, six days, and then we'll be back together on Tuesday. That's counting exclusively. Now, another way you could do it is say, well, we'll be back here next Tuesday, and that'll be eight days from now, and that would be counting, be counting inclusively. I'm going to count today, all right, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. And that's all that that they were doing. All right, now another issue. (laughs) 
And this one, too, you can read all, uh, just, is which mountain did the transfiguration occur on? There are a lot of different mountains that have been uh, proposed. The three main mountains are, I'm going to discuss. The first one would be Mount Hermon. And I kind of lean toward it being Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon was north of where the Lord Jesus, last time we saw the Lord Jesus, when he's speaking the words of Matthew 16, where was he? He was way up north. And you might want to look at one of your maps in the back of your Bible right now, because that's the only way you're going to understand what I'm going to be talking about in the next little bit. But if you can find Mount Hermon, it's north of Caesarea Philippi. Last time we saw Jesus, he was up there in Caesarea Philippi. So it would make sense that six or eight, a week later, he was up on Mount Hermon. It's about 9,000 feet elevation. It's a very big mountain. It's snow-capped for much of the year. Uh, But the only problem that commentators see with Mount Hermon being the Mount of Transfiguration is that in Christ's day, it was outside of Palestine proper. It It was actually in Gentile territory. And the problem is that as soon as Jesus comes down the mountain with his three apostles, he is met by not only his other um, nine apostles, but also some scribes. And so they say there would not be any scribes up there in Gentile territory. So they exclude Mount Hermon. Now, I don't know if that's enough reason to exclude it, because maybe the scribes were just so anxious to you know, find Jesus and criticize him at every opportunity. We already know how ubiquitous they were. Maybe they made an exception and did go up there outside of Palestine proper. I don't know. Uh, Another place that has been claimed for the Mount of Transfiguration is Mount Tabor. Now, here's where you have to look at your maps. Look south of the Sea of Galilee. You'll find Mount Tabor, I think, is on most Bible maps. It's about six miles to the east of Nazareth. You see it's south of Galilee. It was a a mountain. It was not a high mountain. And that's one problem I have because the scripture did definitely say it was a high mountain. Mount Tabor is only 1,900 feet tall. So it's more like a big hill. And also, it was very far south. And we know that the next time we see Jesus, after the transfiguration, he heads down to Capernaum, and it says he passes through Galilee. So unless he and his men took a long walk from Caesarea Philippi, now they had a week to do it, so they could have, because they did do a lot of walking. So he could have left Caesarea Philippi and walked all the way south down to Mount Tabor. And that could have been because he decided that's where he wanted to have the Mount of Transfiguration experience. And then when he left there, he would have to go back up north and around and pass through part of Galilee, because that's what the scripture will tell us. He passed through Galilee, that's Mark 9.30, to come to Capernaum. But geographically, it would have been a lot of extra walking. Another problem with it having been Mount Tabor is that at the time of Christ, there was a fortress located up there on Mount Tabor. Now, that doesn't mean that he and three men couldn't find another place other than the fortress, but he was going up there to pray, and so you'd think he would want a quiet place. But, on saying all that, I also say Mount Tabor would have been a very interesting place for the Lord Jesus to have had the, the transfiguration experience, because the word Tabor in Hebrew means navel, not like my son in the Navy, navel, 
but navel, belly button navel. And uh, Israel is said to be, and this is in Ezekiel, in two different places, Israel is said to be the tabor, the navel of the earth. And land mass wise, if you take all the land masses of the earth and go to the center point of the land masses, you, go, you are in Israel. It is indeed the navel of the earth. And it would be interesting if he decided to have his transfiguration in the place called navel in the navel of the earth, wouldn't it? It's also speculated that Mount Tabor was where Abraham met Melchizedek. Ooh, and that would really be an interesting, if that's true, that would really be an appropriate place for him to have had the transfiguration because Melchizedek was a very mysterious character who so pictured Jesus Christ that a lot of people even say he was the pre-incarnate Christ. So Mount Tabor would really have been an interesting place. Now another place that makes most sense of all geographically but doesn't have as much spiritual significance to it is a mountain called Mount Myron, M-I-R-O-N. You will not find it on your maps and if you do let me know because I've looked at so many maps and couldn't find it. But it is the highest mountain in Palestine proper. It's about 4,000 feet elevation, so it's sort of between the two other mountains. It's relatively easy to reach and comfortable to climb, and it lies midway between Caesarea Philippi and Capernaum. And we know he was in Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16, and after the Mount of Transfiguration experience, he's down in Capernaum, and he passed through Galilee, so it would make sense if it was Mount Myron. But you know what? The bottom line is we do not know where the transfiguration occurred. And I think the Lord probably did that on purpose for the Holy Spirit who inspired the gospel writers. They know. They knew because they were told by the guys who were there. But they were not inspired to tell us which mountain because what would human nature be? What would human nature do? They already did this to some of those places. They already have put all kinds of shrines and temples there, and they would have, they would have worshipped the place more than the person. So I think he purposely did not allow us to know. Uh, so we don't know where it took place, but we do know that it did take place. And we do know that Jesus took just three of his disciples and went up to whatever mountain it was in order to pray. That's what Luke tells us. Matthew and Mark don't tell us, but Luke told us he went there to pray. And as he was praying, he was changed. He was transfigured. But before we get to that, I want to ask the question, why did the Lord take just three men? Why didn't he take all 12 of his apostles? Well, this is speculation, but let's speculate for a while. Perhaps it was because of their intimacy with him. These three were what we call the inner circle of, of the Lord's apostles. They had been with him the longest, and they knew him the best, with the exception of Andrew. Poor Andrew got left out, but uh, he didn't seem to mind. He was a really good guy. But um, they, they were the first of the four disciples that ever followed the Lord Jesus. Also, they were intimate with one another. These guys, Peter, James, and John, had been in the fishing business together along with Andrew, before they even met the Lord. And two of them were brothers, James and John. And that would help, you know, in wanting to keep this thing intimate until after the resurrection. He didn't want anybody else to know about it. So it was important that he had men that were intimate to him. You know, the Lord reads the heart. Maybe these were the three guys who really loved him the most. I don't know. 
but it was also important that they were intimate with one another. One of them, James, would be the the, uh, first leader of the important church at Jerusalem, and he would also be the first one to be martyred. Another one, Peter, was simply a leader among men, and he would open the door of the gospel with the first preached message, right? Who was the first one to preach? Peter on the day of Pentecost. And the third one, John, would be the last apostle. His brother was the first apostle to be martyred. He was the last apostle to die. And he, John, was the one to receive the revelation, the book of Revelation that closed out the scriptures. So all three of these men were highly respected by the early church, and their, their word would be important, not that the others weren't. Also, we know that in Deuteronomy 19.15 and other places, it tells us that it is at the mouth of two or three witnesses that a matter is established. So he had to take at least two or three in order for the matter of what they saw to be established, in order for them there to be sufficient witnesses. I thought it was interesting when I got to thinking about the fact that there were three heavenly witnesses and there were also three earthly witnesses to the transfiguration. We have the three heavenly witnesses were God the Father who spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son. And then there was Moses and Elijah. And the three earthly witnesses, Peter, James, and John. We also have three different inspired gospel account witnesses to this event. And did you ever think about this before? Peter, James, and John were not the men who were privileged to write about the transfiguration, although those were the three that saw it. But the three that recorded it for us were Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Not John. Now, John would have been the only one who saw it and also got to write a gospel. But John's gospel doesn't give us the account of the transfiguration. Now, why do you think that was? Yes, exactly. It would have been too much of a temptation to say, I was there. (laughs) I saw this firsthand. But James didn't get to write anything because he died first, too, too soon. But Peter did write We'll read it a little later. He did write a little bit about what he saw in one of his epistles. Both of his epistles actually center on the second coming glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he never forgot this experience. Also, where did Mark get all of his information? Mark's gospel is really the gospel of Peter. Peter is the one who gave Mark most of his information. Of course, the Holy Spirit inspired it. And, um, And John also, of course, told us what he saw in the kingly splendor of the Lord Jesus Christ in John 1.14. I think I'll read that a little bit later, and also in the book of Revelation. So they all did get to talk about it a little bit, but we had three gospel witnesses, three earthly witnesses, and three heavenly witnesses. Most certainly, if the Lord had allowed all 12 of his disciples to see his unveiled glory, don't you know that at least one of them would have broken the secret? You have a lot better opportunity for your secrets not to get told if you only tell three of your close friends and not 12 of your close friends. Did you know that? Especially if those friends are women. (laughs) Maybe that's not true. Men can be pretty bad gossips too, but... All right, now what are some of the reasons behind this event other than the fact that it was an anticipation of the ultimate splendor of Jesus' coming as the glorious Son of Man? 
Well, for one thing, it gave God's seal of approval to Peter's earlier confession on behalf of all the apostles, that Ju- except Judas, that Jesus truly is the Son of God. Anyway, isn't it interesting that the transfiguration followed the confession rather than the other way around? It would not have been so meaningful if after Peter and the others saw the Lord Jesus transfigured, you know, his divine glory radiating out from inside of him, and then they said, oh, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That wouldn't have been nearly as significant and as meaningful if it it wasn't the way that it was. The way that it was is they said it first. And that's just how Christianity is, isn't it? We, we believe first, and then we are given more and more assurance. So first they made the confession, and then they got the proof. Anyway, so it was God's seal of approval to Peter's earlier confession. Yes, indeed, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. It was also, think about this, it was God the Father's way of giving encouragement to his beloved Son. You know, his Son was a now going to begin his death march. And this is one reason I lean toward Mount Hermon, although I like the site of Mount Tabor because of all the significance. But because he's going to begin his death march down toward Jerusalem from here on, I thought it would be interesting that he goes to the highest mountain and to the most northern mountain to now begin that march down toward Jerusalem. But it was God's encouragement to his son. You know, he, was, he tells his son how pleased he is with him. It was also for the Lord, it was a reminder of the unveiled glory that awaited him beyond the suffering of the cross. You know, he endured the shame and the suffering of the cross. Why? Because he looked forward to the joy that was set before him. He, this was a way of saying, you know, the glory will, is, is yours. Once you go to the cross, the glory will be yours, the full power of the glory again. So it was, uh, all these things were an encouragement. It was teaching the disciples and encouraging the son. Well, from Luke's account, we discovered that when they got to their destination on the mountain, the Lord withdrew from his men to pray. And while he was praying, what were Peter, James, and John doing? Oh, no. (laughs) They were heavy with sleep, it tells us. Is that in Luke or is that... um, Yeah, it's over in Luke 9.32. It says they were heavy with sleep. We have not gotten there, but four years or five years from now, when we get to the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, what do we find again? That they're heavy with sleep. Uh, The spirit was willing, and we all can identify with this, can't we? I know I surely can, the older I get especially. The spirit is willing, but man, the flesh can be weak at times. You know what this tells me? This tells me that following the Lord Jesus Christ is not easy work. It is not easy work. Now, these were, we've talked about this so many times, all three of these men were burly, rough and tough, rugged fishermen. They were used to being out all night fighting storms, fishing, rowing. I mean, they were strong guys, and yet they're always tired following the Lord Jesus. Now, this would make sense that they were heavy with sleep if they had climbed a 9,000-foot mountain. It would also make sense if they had walked from Caesarea Philippi all the way down to Mount Tabor, (laughs) that they were just exhausted. But I thought, what a shame it is that these guys slept through the greatest display of Christ's glory, of the greatest display of his divinity, his deity, 
They slept through most of it. They missed most of the conversation that he had with Moses and Elijah. We get that from Luke's account. They just heard the end of it. And they also slept through the greatest display of the Lord's humanity. When he was there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was praying so in such excruciating, fervent prayer, you know, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless not my will, but thy will be done. He was sweating drops of blood. His prayer was so fervent. They missed his greatest display of deity. They missed his greatest display of humanity, or at least most of it. And I couldn't help but think, Lord, what have I missed? What have I missed? In, in heaven, am I going to find out all the wonderful things that I missed because my, my spirit was willing, but my flesh was weak, and I slept spiritually when I should have been out there doing your work more fervently and going here and witnessing there? And Anyway, it teaches us a lesson, doesn't it? So, where was I? All right. The Lord, so the Lord was transfigured while he was praying in the presence of these sleeping three who were woken up suddenly by the uh, blazing light and the conversation, which all of a sudden they heard, you know, Jesus having with Moses and Elijah. But before we get to that tr- conversation, I want to talk about the transfiguration itself. First of all, the word transfiguration which appears in Matthew 17, 2, and also over in Mark 9, 2, is the Greek word metamorpho, from which we get our English word metamorphosis, meaning a change in appearance that comes from within. And immediately all of us think of what little creature? Yeah, the, well, it starts, with the, it starts with the caterpillar. We all think of the caterpillar who builds itself a cocoon and then amazingly changes appearance within that cocoon to emerge as a beautiful butterfly. Isn't that, is, that's the process of metamorphosis, and is not that one of the great marvels of this world? Scientists know that it happens, but they can't explain why. How in the world does that happen? This ugly little creature with all these little legs goes into this, builds a cocoon around itself and then emerges as a gorgeous butterfly. Just unbelievable. The transfiguration glory was not a reflected glory. It was not a glory that came from the outside. It was a glory that was radiated from the inside of the Lord. The change that appeared on the outside came from within as his essential divine glory. His divine glory was allowed to shine forth out from him. As far as the written record is concerned, concerned, this is the only time in Jesus' earthly ministry that his glory was revealed in, in this way before his resurrection. So how is it described for us? Well, Matthew tells us that his face did shine as what? The sun. Can you look at the sun? Directly look at the sun? Not for more than a second or with sunglasses on. And it says his raiment, his clothing was white as light. And Mark tells us that his clothing became shining, exceeding white as snow, as no fuller or no Clorox, no um, whitener on earth can whiten them. The whitest white you can imagine. And Luke tells us that as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered. And his raiment was white and glistering. And literally in the Greek, it means that his clothing was white, a white that flashes like lightning. There's no human words that can really describe 
the brilliance of the glory that was revealed to Peter, James, and John. From within him, in a way, in a, in a way no human can attempt to explain, surely I can't, Jesus' divine glory was made partially manifest before men. And why do I say it was made partially manifest before men? Well, because no man could ever stand in the presence of the full glory of the Lord and not be consumed. It says in 1 Timothy 6, verses 14 and 16, Christ dwells in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see. You know, um, if, if, if he exposed his full glory, what would have happened to Peter, James, and John? Little crispies, crispy critters. They would have just been consumed. So this, then, was the greatest confirmation yet of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is none other than the revelation, a revelation to men of the essential glory of God that belongs to the Son. And John, he was privileged to see the transfiguration. He was not privileged to write about it, but he did, he did write the gospel which emphasized the deity of Christ, didn't he? John is the one who emphasized the deity of Christ. You know, Matthew, the king, and Mark, the servant, Luke, the, ma- the humanity. John got to write about the deity of Christ. And he said this in John 1.14, We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then Peter... I mentioned, you know, he didn't get to write about this in a gospel account, but he did write in one of his epistles. He said, For he, Christ, received honor and glory from the Father when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's in 2 Peter 1.17. Jesus radiated from within him the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament, which you know, filled the, test, the uh, tabernacle. Remember, it was the Shekinah glory that led wandering Israel in the wilderness by, you know, a cloud during the day, a pillar of cloud during the, the day, or oh, not a pillar of cloud, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That was the Shekinah glory of God. And it also, of course, filled the tabernacle in Exodus 40, verse 34 to 38, and was a re- revealed again later when they built the temple The Shekinah glory of God filled the temple and it abode above the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. This was the glory which sadly, when you read the book of Ezekiel, you find that the glory departed from Israel. And Ezekiel watched its sad depart out the eastern gate, down the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, and gone. And Ichabod was written over Israel which means the glory has departed. Why? Because of her apostasy, her unbelief. But now, here it is again. The Shekinah glory has returned to earth in the temple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for this few, this few moments, he unveiled that glory before three men. And yet the sad thing is that this glory would have to depart again. Jesus Christ would have to depart again from Israel. Why? because of her unbelief and her apostasy once more. But the good news, the great news is that even though this glory has come and gone, come and gone, it will come again. 
at the time of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, when the Shekinah glory will be revealed not only to the nation of Israel, but also to the whole world. The whole world will see the return of the Lord Jesus Christ at the time of his second coming. If you haven't studied that, get our little book on the Olivet Discourse. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. You know what that sign of the Son of Man is? His Shekinah glory. And the whole world will see it. And this time, it won't ever depart again. Hallelujah. I get goosebumps up here. We need to understand also that uh, the glory, the divine glory of Christ was not surrendered at the time he was born in a human body. He did not surrender his divine glory. It was merely veiled, veiled his glory. Otherwise, the people who beheld him would have been consumed by his brightness, starting with his mother Mary. You know, she couldn't have, once she gave birth to him, if he didn't veil his divine glory, she would have been consumed, and every, Joseph and everybody else who ever saw him. Even in the Old Testament, Israel could not behold the unveiled glory, Shekinah glory of God, which is why Moses told, I mean, God told Moses to erect a curtain or a veil between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. You know, that's because it was not only, and the veil was a man's hand width. It was a very thick veil. That's why it was such a miracle when it was rent at the time of the Lord's death. The the veil was not only, it not only spoke of the people's unworthiness to enter the presence of a holy God because of their sin, but think about this. It also protected the people. The veil protected the people from being consumed by the brightness of his glory. So the veil was actually a gracious provision that made it possible for a holy God to dwell in the midst of an unholy people. You see, the physical body of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are told in the book of Hebrews, Christ's body was to him what the veil was to the temple, the tabernacle. His glory was not surrendered at the time of his incarnation, but it was veiled so that it was veiled in a in a flesh and blood body, a cocoon structure, we could say. It was veiled so that God, again, might dwell among people and not consume them. You know, the real marvel is not the unveiling of the glory of Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. The real marvel that he veiled his glory to begin with, that he veiled his glory in a human body. That's the real marvel. Not that he unveiled it for a few moments, but that he ever veiled it to begin with. That he was willing to become a man. That he was willing to hide his glory in a human body. That's really the marvel, isn't it? So the transfiguration was a revelation in part of the essential glory that belongs to Christ and which one day will be openly revealed to all. So how does the metamorphosis of the Messiah apply to us practically? Well, we know that because of the Lord's finished work on Mount Calvary, on the cross, and his resurrection, he now lives where? Christ now lives, you know, in heaven, in his total, full, unveiled glory. The amazing thing is, is that he shares that glory with those of us who have put our faith in him. In his high priestly prayer of John chapter 17, he said to his father, 
And the glory which thou gavest me, Father, I have given them. Speaking of his followers, believers. And he says the reason that he did this is that the world may know that thou hast sent me and that thou hast loved them and thou hast loved me. You see, he wants his glory to be seen by the world in those who belong to him so that others may know that he was sent by by his father to the world, to reveal the father to the world and to die for them. The good news for us is that we don't have to wait until we get to heaven. We don't have to sit around waiting until we get to heaven to share in the Lord's transfiguration glory. We can partially have it here. We will fully have it there, but we can partially have it here. The same word, metamorpho, is used in Revelation 2.12. Now, we all know Revelation 12, 1 and 2, right? I beseech ye, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is just yeah, reasonable service. And be... Did I say Revelation? Yeah, Romans. Yes, thank you. No, Romans. Yeah, I'm sorry. Romans, not Revelation. Romans 12, 1 and 2. And he says, uh, be not conformed to this world. In other words, don't be molded into to, to what this world would like to make us, but be ye transformed. You know what that word transformed is? Metamorphosis. Be ye transfigured. Be ye metamorphosized. How? How are we metamorphosized? How are we changed from the inside out? By the renewing of our minds. That's the key. The renewing of our minds. Yeah, we need to have the mind of Christ. And how do we do that? Well, we sur- when we surrender ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, then, and when we're surrendered ourselves to him, he will transfigure our minds. As we yield to the Spirit of God, he changes us. He transfigures us from glory to glory. We look into the mirror of his word, we see him, and we, cha- we are changed more into his image as we look into the mirror and yield ourselves to the spirit. And this metamorphosis process is theologically called what? Starts with an S. Sanctification. You know, I thought about the fact that there are two basic words for, to explain all of Christianity. Conversion and conformity. We are converted in Christ. That's where it begins. Conversion in Christ and then the rest of the time, it's a conformity to Christ. More and more conformed into his image. And that's the ultimate goal of the Father for each and every one of his children. That's why he puts us through all the things he puts us through. It's not for so much for our happiness, like John, but it's so that we might lean more on him, trust more in him, and become more like him. And another key to it is not only the word of God, but what was Jesus doing when he was transfigured? He was praying. Prayer is another key to being transfigured. Warren Wearsby in his commentary says that this must have been the greatest Bible conference of all time. Can you imagine? Now, it was wonderful to have Joan here last week, but can you imagine if I announced to you that next week we were going to have Moses here to speak to you. Elijah was going to come. And key speaker would be the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
Now, do you hope that this place would be packed out? Absolutely. I hope it would be. <laughs> and not only did they have the greatest speakers, the greatest Bible, I can't imagine going to a better Bible conference than that, but also they were talking about the greatest subject because they were talking about the Lord's redemptive work up there. Well, why do you suppose that these two Old Testament saints were chosen by God to be the ones to, to meet with the Lord Jesus up there on the Mount of Transfiguration? Why didn't John the Baptist appear? He was dead. Couldn't have God brought him back and and Jesus could have had a good time talking up there. Why didn't, why didn't God bring back Abraham? After all, he's the father of the faith. Or what about David? Jesus was from the lineage of David. He was going to sit on the throne of David. Why not somebody else that you could think about? Why Moses and why Elijah? Well, probably, you could read lots of different explanations, but, uh, and a lot of them make sense, but probably the best one of all is that Moses represented the law and Elijah represented the prophets, and Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of both the law and the prophets. The important thing, though, is not so much the men, but their conversation with Jesus. What were they speaking about? Well, we are told that they were speaking with the Lord about his decease. That's in Luke 9:31. his decease, his departure. And the Greek word literally is his exodus. His exodus. I love that. I wish the English had done that and said his exodus. The Old Testament exodus, which Moses led, and maybe that's also why Moses was there, uh, that exodus liberated a people from the bondage that they had endured under the Egyptians. Well, the exodus of Jesus out of the grave would lead believers out of their bondage to sin and death. Peter, James, and John not only witnessed the confirmation of Christ's divine glory um, at the transfiguration, but they also received confirmation of his divine redemptive plan from representatives of the law and the prophets. And this redemptive plan, remember, is what they found so difficult to accept that he would have to suffer many things that he would have to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, and that he would have to be killed, that he would have to decease. And yet when they wake up, that's what they hear Moses and Elijah talking to the Lord about, his exodus, his decease. I, I couldn't help, well, I hate to get off on a tangent, but I couldn't help but thinking, you know, these guys had to come from paradise, the paradise section of Hades. They were not yet in the presence of the Lord. But what do you think was going on down there in the paradise section of Hades? I think that Moses and Elijah and all the other Old Testament saints were studying the scripture and were, they knew what was going to happen. They were getting very, very excited. They knew Jesus was on earth and that the time of his approaching exodus was approaching when he would go to the cross and die and raise from the dead and come down and set them free and take them up into the presence of God the Father. These guys were excited about this. And I think they were there in the Mount of Transfiguration. This is speculation, but I know they were talking about his exodus. I think they were there encouraging the Lord, you know, saying, oh, we can't wait. This is so exciting, you know. And they understood. This gives me a, the idea that, that in heaven we're going to be also talking about the Lord and what he did and studying the scriptures and just having a good time through all of eternity. Because you know we're not even scratching the surface, the depth of this book. We're just scratching the surface of it. But anyway, it's exciting. The, the use of the Greek word exodus actually helps us to understand the Lord's own attitude about his death. You know how he saw it? You know how he saw his own approaching death? 
he saw it as an act that would liberate him from that period of bondage that he was in, in a cocoon type of structure. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel? I do quite a bit, especially as this old cocoon of mine is getting older and older. I feel like, you know, I am entrapped. The real me is entrapped in this cocoon, this shell. And one day, oh, it's going to be so marvelous. One day I'm going to escape from this shell. And I'm going to emerge as a beautiful butterfly and flutter away, up, up, and away. (laughs) And away we go to be with Jesus forever and ever. Isn't that a beautiful way to look at death? You know, we don't look forward to the dying process. And maybe, maybe we won't have to die. I have a theory on that, that we're not going to. So, like I said before, hang in there, ladies. <laughs> Some of you that are getting older, hang in. A few more years, we're going to be out of here. But isn't that a beautiful way to think of death? As our exodus, our emerging from this cocoon. What kind of butterfly do you want to be? Just a free one. <laughs> All right, now when Peter was awakened by the sight and realized that he wasn't dreaming, can't you just see old Peter shaking his head going, Ooh, I can't believe what I'm seeing here. He approached the Lord with a suggestion. Now, this guy is just so funny. It's amazing how many times he has to venture forth as the first one to say something. His suggestion, his suggestion, and we do have to give him a little credit. In a week's time, he has learned a little bit because now notice he says in Matthew 17, 4, I'm back over in Matthew, uh, he says, if thou wilt. (laughs) So he's learned a little something. He just doesn't approach the Lord and say, I'm going to build some booths. He says, if thou wilt, how about if James and John and I build you some tabernacles or booths, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah? Now, another thing I couldn't help but think is, how did Peter know the identity of these two men? How did he know that that was Moses and that was Elijah? Do you think when we get to heaven and we see Jesus, that we've never seen him before? Have you ever seen him? Don't tell me if you have. But (laughs) we are going to know him. How are we going to know him? I don't know, but we're going to know him. Absolutely, when we see him, we're going to know who he is. Are we going to know Abraham when we see Abraham? Yes, we're going to know. That's Abraham. We see Moses, that's that's Moses, that's Elijah. J. J. Vernon McGee says, you think we're going to be more stupid in heaven than we are down here? We're going to know each other. And that's exciting. Yeah, we're going to know everybody. Yeah, we're going to, and we're going to get to spend eternity not only talking about the Lord and, and worshiping him and studying about him, but getting to know each other's testimonies. Oh, won't that be so much fun? Let's just go right now. <laughs> well, why would Peter have suggested such a thing about building booths or building tabernacles? That's a whole other story. I think I explained it a little bit in your notes. I don't have time to get into it right now, but they, uh, chronologists believe that this occurred at the time of uh, October. Tishri, is it in there? And uh, it was during the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. So he had tabernacles on his mind. And that, the Feast of Tabernacles is the only week-long festival or holiday uh, feast of Israel that's going to continue in the Millennial Kingdom. So he's thinking, ah, the kingdom is here. Let's set up booths. And that's where the, the wheels of his mind are going. But I don't have time to develop that. But once again, we are told, and I think this is interesting. This is in Luke 9:33 that P- Peter spoke, but he didn't know what he was saying. And in Mark, Mark it says, Mark 9, 6. You have to look at that. Mark 9, 6. Remember, Mark got his information from Peter. And Peter admitted this later on to Mark. It says, for he, speaking of Peter, he wist not what to say. (laughs) For they were sore afraid. But Peter was one of those kinds of guys that 
If nobody was saying anything, he couldn't stand the silence and he had to say something. Can you identify with that? I am one of those dumb people that does that. My husband is a salesman. I know, don't get word back to him that I'm talking about him, but he is a salesman and he talks all the time. Some of you have quiet husbands and you can't stand it. Well, tell, let me tell you what. You got a husband that talks a lot. It, it can get on your nerves too because he's, he's just a talker. You'd think he'd expend all his words when he's out there selling, but he doesn't. He comes home and he talks, talks, talks. Even when he's sitting there studying, he's talking out loud. <laughs> but the only time I can't get the man to talk is when we have company over for dinner. And then all of a sudden he's sitting at the dinner table and he doesn't say a word. <laughs> and so what do I do? I start talking and saying, sometimes I just say dumb things just because I can't stand the lull in the conversation. So I'll just, and I think Peter was that kind of a guy. So I kind of identify with Peter. If there was a quiet in the conversation, he just had to say something. He didn't know what he was saying, but he said, he, he made his suggestion. But it was, again, it was bad because he was expressing his own thoughts and ideas rather than the Lord's. He, you know, Jesus had just told him a week before that he must go to Jerusalem, he must suffer, he must die. There he is talking to Moses and Elijah about the fact that he's going to die, he's going to exit, he's going to decease. But Peter still doesn't like the idea of the Lord's death. You see, he wanted to freeze the moment. He, would, he was content to stay with Jesus and Moses and Elijah up there on the mountain. Let's build a little shelter and let's just stay up here. He could have had a great time talking to Moses and Elijah for months and months and years. Have you ever wanted to freeze the moment? Oh, yes, many, many times I have just said, oh, if I could just freeze this moment and keep it right here. All my children are, are behaving themselves right now. They all just told me they love me. My husband just brought me flowers. Let's freeze the moment. And that's what Peter wanted to do. He didn't want the Lord to leave. He didn't want the exodus. Even if the Lord did say he'd rise on the third day and that he would come back again. Now, things really get serious for Peter. The last time Peter made a suggestion, who cut him short? God the Son. Get thee behind me, Satan. This time Peter makes a suggestion, uh-oh. He's cut off from God the Father. <gasps> Peter's really getting in hot water here. His suggestion, you see, reflected human thinking and not divine. And so he was interrupted uh, when all of a sudden a bright cloud overshadowed all of them. And this is so significant, I hate to leave it out, and I don't think it is in your notes, so let me try to say it really quickly. You know, when Moses met with God to receive the, the law, up on Mount Sinai, we are told that a dark cloud overshadowed, when he came down, overshadowed the people. A dark and threatening cloud. You know why? Because the law is dark and threatening. Because it condemns. None of us can fulfill the law, right? It's a dark and threatening thing. But what kind of cloud comes down here? A bright cloud. You see, Jesus Christ sets us free from our bondage to the law, doesn't he? Oh, there's so much significance in this. Anyway, a bright cloud overshadowed all of them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Everything Jesus had ever said or done, God the Father was pleased with. Doesn't matter what the religious rulers said about him, all the critics, God was pleased with him. Does it matter what other people say about you and I? The only thing that matters is what God says about us. He said, hear ye him. 
You know, God spoke from heaven three times in the Lord's earthly ministry. The first time was at his baptism, and there God spoke to Jesus. He said directly to Jesus, Thou art my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Who is he speaking to here? He isn't speaking to his Son, even though his words are encouraging his Son. He's actually directly speaking to the disciples, the apostles. He said, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. The third time God speaks from heaven is over in John 2, 28, and it's a few days before his death, and you'll notice there he speaks, God speaks to all the people that are gathered around. First time to his son, second time to his apostles, third time to all the people. Isn't that interesting? By interrupting Peter's speech, the father was focusing men's attention not on the vision that they had seen, but on the word of God. Notice he didn't say, this is my beloved son, see ye him. He didn't say, this is uh, my beloved son, focus on this experience and this wonder and this sign. He said what? Hear ye him. Visions will fade. Experiences will fade. It's only the word of God that abides forever. Only the word of God is unchanging. In a few minutes, their vision faded away. But the word of God endures forever. The wonderful vision of the transfiguration was not to be an end in itself. Peter was not to build booths so that the vision could be stared at indefinitely. Instead, the transfiguration was God's way of confirming the word. You see, God forever endorsed what his son had to say to a needy world. Hear ye him. What is so important for us? To hear what some man out there says, even if it's Moses? So don't focus on Moses, he's saying. Don't focus even on Elijah or any great man. Focus on the words of my son. And that's why I think it doesn't matter if it takes us 10 years to study the life of Christ. We're being obedient to God the Father because he said, hear ye him. And we're hearing and listening and studying to every single word that the Lord Jesus Christ said. So we're being obedient to that command. He says, don't put him on any equal basis with any other man. He was rebuking Peter. How dare you say, you know, that my son would be on an equal basis with Moses and Elijah, and you're going to build booths for all three of them. Hear my son when he says that he must go to Jerusalem, and he must suffer at the hands of the religious rulers, and he must die. And believe it. And when he tells you that discipleship involves self-denial, not self-esteem, self-denial, And when he tells you that discipleship involves bearing our own cross and perhaps misunderstanding and persecution and even possibly death and certainly following him in obedience, then what? Hear ye him. And if he says he's going to be resurrected, guys, why don't you hear him on the third day? And when he says he's going to build his church and then return again in the glory in which you see him right now, then believe him and live your lives in light of that truth. Hear him. You know, discipleship is not built on spectacular visions and experiences. I know that's a tendency with many people in Christendom today is they want to go from one experience, one mountaintop spiritual high to another. Some people just want one experience, one vision, one sign, one wonder. Be careful what you read, too about all these people who have these after-death experiences and all this sort of stuff. What are we to focus on? The Word of God, 
experiences, you know, they'll fade away. And the people who, go, who live like that, pretty soon they need another one. They forgot about the first one. It's faded away, and so they need another one. Discipleship is not built on that sort of thing. It is built on the unchangeable word of God. And, you know, it's nice to have once in a while to have a mountaintop experience, and that's good, and Jesus did have his mountaintop experiences. You know, he was there. Were were we in the Sermon on the Mount when we began this year? I can't even remember when we started back in September, but we were at least at the end of last year. This time we're in the Sermon on the Mount, so we're on one mountaintop, and now here we are on another mountaintop, the Mount of Transfiguration. But in between, what, what was there? The valley. Most of our Christian life is spent where? In the valley. Yes, every now and then he gives us a little refreshment and a mountaintop experience. But in all that in-between time, Jesus was walking in the valley, touching people, meeting people's needs. That's what it's all about. Well, now when the disciples heard God's voice from heaven, it says they were scared to death. Needless to say, the brightness of that cloud and everything, and then the voice from heaven. And it says they, they fell on their faces, and they were sore afraid. And I thought, now if I fell on my face, I'd be sore afraid, too. That's a joke. But everyone who ever encountered God always seemed to be fearful. And Jesus, of course, the ever-compassionate, comforting one, touched them. And uh, he dispelled their terror, and they got up. And when they got up, Moses and Elijah were gone, and Jesus was returned to normal again. And the next time we see them, they're going down the mountain, and Jesus commands the three men who had just seen this fantastic sight to tell no man, not even the other nine apostles, what they had seen until when? After he had been resurrected. And it tells us over in Mark 9:10 that they started questioning among themselves, what did he mean when he said after he would be resurrected? So they're beginning to wonder, what does this mean? He keeps talking about being raised from the dead. What is that all about? For these men to have told others what they had been privileged to see would have been a temptation to draw attraction to themselves. Can you not imagine that if they went down to the bottom of the mountain and told the other guys, guess what we just saw? I can picture the conversation between Peter and Thomas. (laughs) What do you think Thomas would have said? Oh, right, Peter. Uh Uh-huh. I don't believe you. I wouldn't believe it if I saw it with my own two eyes. And, of course, there would be, be, there's already strife between the apostles. We'll read about this, you know, where there's, who's the greatest, da-da-da. This would not have been conducive to a, a good situation among the apostles. It would have... It would have led to division and jealousy. They probably wouldn't have been believed. If they had told other, the people about what they had seen, what do you know the people would have been doing? Scrambling up the mountain, looking through the woods or the snow for Moses and Elijah, or saying, Jesus, do it again, do it again, we want to see it. <clears throat> they would have been building shrines there, you know, until these men were empowered with God the Holy Spirit, they weren't really equipped yet to speak about what they had seen. And then we even noticed that really God didn't inspire them to be the ones, just so they wouldn't get puffed up, just like when Paul was in glory and couldn't write about it. All right, so um, I'm out of time. Do you want me to stop right here? 
Okay, I'll just finish. I'm, I'm maybe three minutes and I can be finished. <clears throat> this whole event raised within the men's minds as they're coming down the mountain. They, they had a uh, chronological problem with what they had seen. We could call it an eschatological question. They had just seen Elijah. And if you go over <clears throat> just to the last book of the Old Testament and look at the very last chapter, Malachi 4, the last two verses of the Old Testament were a prediction that Elijah would come before the Messiah. It's a prediction about Elijah, the forerunner of the Messiah. They had just seen Elijah up there on the, uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration. So naturally, and the scribes, they, they mention, as they're talking to the Lord in Matthew 17, that the scribes said that first Elijah must come. The scribes were correct. First, Elijah must come and set things, you know, restore the people, get them ready for the coming of the Messiah and the establishment of the kingdom. So you can see how they're thinking. They're coming down the mountain. Well, we've just seen Elijah. It must mean that you're about to set up the kingdom. Elijah has come. But why did Elijah disappear? Why isn't he still here now? And uh, isn't he going to stay around to restore the people so, so that, the king, that you can set up your kingdom? They're confused. Now, they had known about John the Baptist, and they had hoped that John the Baptist was like a dual fulfillment prophecy, you know, that he had come in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. But they're confused because John's ministry fizzled out real fast. So they're asking Jesus, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? What, what's the story here? And he confirms to them, if you look at his answer in Matthew 17, <clears throat> he confirms to them that, yes, that's right. Elijah must come first. Let me read it. He says, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. And then in verse 12, he says, but I say unto you that Elias is already come. And they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Who is he speaking of? John the Baptist, he's telling them Elijah already has come in the person of John the Baptist, but the Jews let him die. Do you know that the Jews could have rescued John from the prison? If they had had a concerted effort and, and stormed the gates of the prison, they could have set John the Baptist free or even threatened to have a, a revolt against Herod. He wouldn't have wanted to have that problem, you know, Caesar breathing down his neck. He might have set him free, but they didn't even try to set John the Baptist free. So he says, he goes on and he says, Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. So he's predicting again his own suffering at the hands of the Jewish people. And um, so they understand. It says in verse 13, they understand that he talked about uh, John the Baptist. They got that. So what about Elijah? Will he come? Is this a dual fulfillment prophecy? Was it partially filled by John the Baptist? Yes, because he, did. he was the forerunner of the Messiah. But because Israel rejected the Messiah and their king, he could not establish the kingdom, right? So the kingdom had to be postponed. The king will come again, and he will establish his kingdom. Will there be, there be another? Will Elijah come before that? Well, many people say, yes, he will. Elijah will come before the Lord's return. And that's why many people say that one of the two mighty witnesses that is described for us in Revelation 11 will be Elijah. I think I tend to believe that myself. Others say that another man, not necessarily Elijah himself, 
but that another man will come, like John the Baptist, in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. And that may be too. But Elijah will come either himself or again in another person. He will have to. And that will be the full fulfillment of Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Well, one more thing, and we're out of here. Not only does the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus give us a foreshadowing of the Lord's return at his second coming, but it's also a revelation of the glory that awaits you and I at the time of the blessed hope, at the time of the rapture. You know, Paul told us, of course, that not all of us will die, not all of us will sleep, but that some of us will be changed when? In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. And the word that he uses for um, changed is the word, the same word, metamorphosis. We will be transfigured or metamorphosized. So this explains what Paul meant when he said that when Christ appears, we will appear with him in glory. You know, all of us of the church age are going to be, at the time of of rapture, the blessed hope, we're going to be out of here. The cocoons are going to be gone. We're going to be butterflies out of here. Some of us will have already died, perhaps, unless you can hang in here a little bit longer. (laughs) But those who are dead in Christ first shall rise, and then that we which are alive will also, you know, be changed, be metamorphosized. This is what he meant when he says, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. So we can not only be partially transfigured here and now by the renewing of our minds in the word of God from glory to glory, but one day we have this wonderful promise that when he comes... For his church, at the time of the rapture, we will share in his full transfiguration glory for all of eternity. And I can't think of a better promise than that, can you? No wonder it's called the blessed hope. It it is a sure hope, too. So, little butterflies, let's close in prayer. Now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen.